Well, I hope you brought your Bibles tonight, and I want you all to bring them every week because we're going to look at a lot of the passages he talks about and try to see if we can add some clarity to these passages. Um, any other comments in general about the chapter? What is oh, good, okay. You've got New Testament, uh, the male authorized version underneath your, your chairs. Uh, I'm sorry, the new authorized version under uh, underneath your chairs. Okay, yeah. Uh, that's an interesting perspective that maybe he's thinking that his own crowd's going to read him and really bolster. He's pandering to them possibly. Uh, but at the same time, Campolo, how many of you have heard Tony Campolo before? A handful of you? I mean, Campolo, is a, he's a major evangelical player. He's been around for mul- multiple decades, and uh, a lot of evangelicals don't know that he's more leftist or, or, or loose with some of his social issues. So maybe evangelicals would read, and he's hoping to stir it up. Uh, I thought that, honestly, I chose the book. I thought that some of his language in this particular chapter was pretty inflammatory. I don't know. Did you guys feel that? I mean, what what was the word he kept using for the oppression of women? He kept saying people that hold these these traditional views are what? They're evil. Right? He kept using evil. And what did you say? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, we'll have a good discussion here tonight. Uh, evil. And what else did he call them? sexist. And what else? And racist. Right. I mean, he used this pretty inflammatory language. In fact, not only that, but there's another, uh, at the beginning of the book, what he calls this idea of women having roles. Uh, and he talks about the powers and what does he call it? What was it influenced by? Demon. It's demonic. So it's demonic, evil, uh, sexist, and racist. I mean, so he's passionate about this issue. And so if you had to summarize Campolo's entire argument about not making a distinction in roles, what is, he, what is he essentially trying to say? What's he saying? That's right. That when Christ came, all class, gender, and racial distinctions have gone away. And so that therefore, on that basis, there is now a pure equality among all people. Okay? So that's his major thesis. Now, let me introduce a couple concepts here as we go through this, and we're going to talk about them, right? Uh, I'm going to throw out a $64 word here, but I want you guys to understand the distinction here, okay? There's a word uh, called... Am I writing that big enough? Okay, what's that word? Ontological equality. Okay, big old fancy word. That's free tonight. Okay, just write that on the side margins of your Bible. Um, that term, what does this word mean right here? So this is kind of a technical term. You see it in philosophy a lot. What does ontological mean? You get the root word ontic, if that helps you any. Um, anybody ever heard the word ontological? Yeah? Uh, ontological comes from a word ontos, which means essence or being. Okay? So if you come up with, for instance, an ontological argument for God's existence, you're arguing for the existence of God by the very nature of His being, that His being is necessary. God cannot not exist, okay? So whenever you talk about something having ontological equality, what you're saying is that men and women have an equality on the basis of what? Of their being. They are equal. So when you think about that, where do you go in the Bible 
to show ontological equality or equality on the basis of their essence, where would you go? Genesis 1, right? You go to Genesis 1, namely verse 26. And that's where you read, And God said, Let us what? Let us make man, it's gender neutral, okay? Let us make man in our image. And then it says, And God made male and female, he made them in the image of God. And so you see that right off the bat in the Bible, you have men and women given ontological equality, that there's an essence that they are made the same. All right? So the biblical premise is, is, is that men and women, when it comes to their very nature, are exactly the same. Men are not greater than women. Women are not subservient to men. That by, by due fact of creation in the image of God, men and women are equal. Now, there's a second term here, and this is where the debate is. Okay? The debate is whether this one, uh, what's the role of this? Functional equality. Okay? Functional equality. In other words, the way men and women are to function, is that the same or is there a hierarchical function? Okay? What's a hierarchical function? What does that sound like? Different levels, right? A different order. They're equal, but there's a hierarchy of functioning. Okay? That's the question. Now, uh, this right here is what Tony Campolo in his chapter is maintaining. All right? And I want to try to explain his argument and see uh, how, how we do with it. Okay? Uh, number one, he goes to a passage in Galatians uh, 3.28. He quotes that a couple times. What's Galatians 3.28? Anybody remember what that is? What's that? Yes, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor freeman. We are all what? One in Christ Jesus. Okay? And so what Tony does is he takes that and he says, look, slave, freeman, Male, female, Jew, Gentile, all now are absolutely equal, not just in nature, but in what? Well, in function. All right? That's his argument. But when you look at Galatians 3.28, okay? And if you have your Bibles, look there with me for just a minute. I want you guys just to see what Paul is saying here. The question is, is Paul talking about function here? Is he talking about function? And so we look here, verse 28. Y'all with me here? Verse 26. Look at verse 26. He says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have, uh, uh, into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. Alright, so right there, what's he talking about? What's the context here? What's that? Faith. It's our position within Christ. Uh, what was the attitude of Jews at this time with respect to the Messiah? What was their attitude? Well, because the believing Jews that believed that He was the Messiah. They were chosen. This is, this is our Messiah. See, and therefore, if you were a Gentile... And now you came into the faith. What did now the Jewish 
Christians want you to do. They wanted you to become circumcised, right? And they wanted you now to practice their dietary habits. And they wanted you to observe what? The, the law or the Sabbath, exactly. See, so they were forcing Judaistic law upon Gentiles. Paul is writing in opposition to this movement. They were called the Judaizers. And he's writing to them and he says, look, we've all been baptized into Christ, into His death, and through His resurrection. We're all at the same, at the same place before Jesus. And the concluding thought is, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then what? Then you are Abraham's seed. Who's he saying that to? The Jew. See, because the Jew took that ethnically. Wait a minute. I'm ethnically Abraham's seed, right? Therefore, I have special rights, special access. As Paul saying, no, no, no. Whenever God gave the promise to Abraham that through your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Right? How was that fulfilled? How? Through Christ. And now Christ says, go out into all the nations, baptizing, teaching them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? So all of a sudden, all the world gets blessed through Christ being the seed of Abraham. And Paul says, now, uh, in 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what's the context of neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor freeman, we're all one in Christ? What's the context? Salvation is open to anybody. This, has, this text has nothing to do with the functional roles of slave or freeman, males or females, Jews or Gentiles. It has nothing to do with function. It has everything to do with the accessibility of salvation unto all men and women. Y'all with me on that? And this is a major, major argument that uh, Campolo bases everything off of, is that when Christ came, essentially all distinctions and all functions collapsed. See? And that's his point. So, uh, any comments on that before we keep, before we keep going? Right, it's not the obliteration of all functional roles in that society. Uh, that's right. And there's many other passages we could go to to show that. But the point I want to make is simply that Galatians has nothing to do with function. It has everything to do with accessibility to salvation. Okay? Y'all, are you all with me so far on that? Um, now, in the chapter, uh, what else do you see that Campolo argues? What, what else is his argument in favor of functional equality? What else does he argue in this chapter? And specifically, what woman did he talk about? His mother, right. Her divine right, her divine call. So, right, remember the, remember the account of his mom. And so his mother was a wonderful storyteller, right, like most of our mothers probably were. And, and she was a wonderful teacher, he said. And she always felt like she had a, she, she had a calling to be a teacher, um, but she never did it because why? What was what, what did he say? Yeah, because they didn't let her, right? And, and, and so then he says that that was that was an evil, and he actually likens it. Remember, he calls them structural evils, right? What is a structural evil? 
to him. A structural evil. They're embedded in societies all the time, he said. What is a structural evil? Well, that's almost like it was his word. That's, that was great. Yeah. Very good. Good memory. Yeah. So, they're essentially... What's that? Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> um, so, they're essentially these, these structures, these social structures that are embedded in society that tell people how to think. Right? And he gives you a couple examples of this. What are the two uh, examples that he gives of structural evils? Yeah, one of them was, right, slavery, which we would absolutely concur with him that that was a structural evil embedded in society that told people what the what their class was or what their function was to be. And what was the other one? Yeah, yeah, not yeah. He gives a couple others, but Nazism. What two eyes in Nazism? No. One eye. Nazism. Okay. Nazism, right? As he, and he says these, these structural evils are embedded and because they limit the freedoms, that's the point. That's why it's a structural evil. It's because it is an inherent social structure that limits an individual or a class's ability to do something, right? And any time you see a structural, a structural evil that limits people's freedom, he sees that as ultimately demonic because... The gospel has come, according to Campolo, to do what? To set us free. And it is for freedom that Christ has come. Right? Once again, it comes right out of what book? What book did I just quote out of? Galatians. See? And he will make a lot out of the book of Galatians in the the areas of function when Galatians has virtually nothing to do with function. It has everything to do with accessibility unto salvation. Okay? So, he takes two legitimate cases of structural evil, and then what he does is he segues and he says that if you say that there, are a, there is a, a, a woman's role, right, and then there's a man's role, the fact that men have established the roles is a, is a structural evil. So, what he wants to do is he wants to... Uh, essentially take the legs out from under that and show that we're all one in function. So that's another one of his arguments, is the argument from structural, structural evil. Um, can you give me another one? I want to make sure we really cover what his points are here. Does that make sense, by the way, what he did? What he's arguing on structural evils? Okay. That's more of a sociological argument. What else does he argue? Right. Right. Yeah, well, you know, the funny thing is, is, most Ephesians 6.12 talks about the powers, principalities, and those things. Most have seen those as demonic forces, right? He's interpreting those as structural evils, as systems in place that are driven by demonic forces, see? So he says the ultimate source is still demonic. He's just saying that the powers and the principalities are actual structural evils embedded in society. And what a Christian is supposed to do is we're supposed to go into society and we're supposed to strip away these structural evils. We have, uh, it's 2 Corinthians 10.5, that we tear down, what? All speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. See? 
So in a sense, he's right. As Christians, we are called to be people who tear down ideas. Which, by the way, is why the point exists. Because we come here and we learn and we study and understand why it is that we think what we do and why we believe what we do and why others think the way they do. And then it helps us to know how to tear down every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. So he's right about that. The question, once again, is it's begging the question, what about this issue? Is there such a thing as a woman's role, a man's role, and are, uh, is there a functional uh, distinction between men and women? Okay? Um, what? T- yeah. Yeah. I don't think he uses the word idolatry. He just says it's a, it's a, it's a demonic influence. That any time you restrict one's freedom, it's a form of oppression, which is a function of Satan. Okay, so um, any any other arguments that you felt like as you read it particularly stuck out with you in the book? Don't remember, mark anything or see anything that you thought was note, noteworthy? Yeah, I think sometimes if you make your biography the standard of everyone else, then it's easy to do that. But you could also say that about us. You know, we grew up with certain ideas and understandings of Scripture, and therefore we impose that on others. But I think you're right. We have to be very careful, um, you know, what it is that's your your baby, you know, what you grew up with, and therefore you impose it on everyone else. You know, it's like Abraham Aslow, remember his famous saying that um, if one is good with a hammer, then he thinks what? He thinks everything's a nail. Right, uh, you have to be real careful that you don't take your own biography and what it is that you um, have been essentially influenced by and suddenly make everything a nail out there. So, you know, I was a little surprised that he would tell the story about his mom and make that as one of his points. Um, except the point was he felt like it was a frustration of the divine call in her life. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, if there's one thing evangelicals do say is. Uh, don't necessarily give me your biography. Don't tell me what you feel. Uh, show me what Scripture says. Right? That's essentially one of the tenets of evangelicalism. And he actually hallmarks that as one of the great things about evangelicals. Yeah? Would another structural evil be uh, limiting the freedom of the unborn through abortion? Well, he's pro-life. And so uh, he would probably say that that is a structural evil, um, I-, I would say. But that's, that's going to be you know, another, another chapter that he's going to talk about that. But yes, anything that limits the freedoms of another, yeah. But he is pro-life. Yeah, did you have a thought? Right, yeah. Yeah, the tobacco industry and the military industrial, yeah, all of that. Yeah, he hit a lot. Um, But let's tackle some of the passages now. Yeah. Yeah, well, he's gonna—he's of course believes in mandated law by God. He's just gonna say some laws mandated by God were meant for what? For particular cultures and times. And so the question is, how do I determine what laws were determined for all times, and what laws were determined for specific cultural times? So, for instance, what's the classic case of biblical law that was established just for a period of time? Where in your Bible do you go where you see that? What's that? Yeah, well, circumcision, exactly. There's one, exactly. We would call that part of these ceremonial laws, right? 
yeah, the dietary laws, ceremonial laws, those things were for a time, and then they and then they passed away through the coming of Christ. The question is, you know, moral law. Does moral law pass away? No, moral law is now embedded now in the heart, not simply in written form on tablets of stone, but now it's written on the heart. Uh, now, with with respect to function, uh, function does change. Um, do we have a head on this planet that's the high priest that represents us all on this earth? Not if you're Protestant, right? You say no, because we believe in what's called the doctrine of the priesthood of believers, Second Peter, right? And what does that mean? What is the doctrine of the priesthood of believers? We're all we're all priests now. We are a kingdom of priests forever, is what the is what the scriptures teach us. And so, therefore, I don't need another to intercede on behalf of me. I can now do what? I can now go before God. And so, there's an example of a function that changed over time. Yeah, and ultimately, apart from this world, we do have a high priest that represents us before the Father. Uh, but we don't have one that represents us on earth anymore like they used to have. Um, well, let's look at some of these passages here, okay? Um, Campolo essentially talks about uh, one or two major passages, and I want you all to look at this. First Timothy chapter 2, okay? This is one of the classic passages in the debates. I want you to look at this. First Timothy chapter 2. Okay, look in verse 11, 12 and 13. Now, what, what Tony does is he, all he deals with is verses 11 and 12, and he stops. Okay, if you, if you remember it in your book, he doesn't go any further than verse 12. And I think there's a reason for that. But let's look at verse 11. He says, well, he actually addresses verse 9. Okay, I want to I talk about this idea. He says, Verse 9, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold. Any girls wearing gold right now? How many of y'all are wearing gold right now? Yeah. See, he said, you're not a biblical literalist. You don't take the Bible seriously. You wouldn't wear gold. You'd trade it in for copper. Uh, or pearls. Anybody got any pearls on right now? How many of you are wearing pearls? No pearls. All right. You're biblical. Or expensive clothes. How many of you women are wearing expensive clothes right now? That's relative, I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Okay, now what he says is, look, this commandment right here that Paul is telling essentially Timothy to spread, he's saying that is a cultural mandate. All right? And we would agree with him. It's a cultural mandate uh, because at this time there were certain cultural things happening that Paul did not want women to distract uh, men from worship, okay? So a, a modern-day equivalent would be like this. Uh, I also want women... Now, this is in the context of worship okay, that he's talking. I also want women to not wear mini skirts and high heels because it would be really hard for your pastor to worship uh, during that. Sorry, Ron. Got to throw you under the bus, not me. Um, or... I also want women to not wear low-cut V-necks. What do you call those? Tops. Sorry. Uh, because that would be a distraction. In that day, there were certain things that were forms of distraction in worship. Okay? Which is one of the reasons that you had the introduction of the head covering at that time. Because it was important that, that men would not be distracted during worship. Okay? Now, 
We keep going, and then he says in verse 11, here's the, here's the passage that's, that's up for discussion. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Let me read that again. <laughs> yeah. And all of God's people said... <laughs> Some of God's people, right. Some of God's people with deep voices said, Amen. Verse 12. <laughs> Do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. All right. Now, Tony's argument about this passage is what? What did he say in the chapter? Verses 11 and 12. What does he say about those two verses? That preceded it. A literal. Right, exactly. So what he's going to say is, uh, virtually all evangelicals, except ones that live in the hills of Kentucky, believe that verse 9 and 10 um, are, were meant to be cultural. Because all of us wear you know, clothes that are you know, relatively expensive, too expensive, and wear gold and these kinds of things. So he says that is cultural. We all accept that. There's not a lot of evangelicals going to battle over 9 and 10, you know, carrying picket signs for women to quit wearing pearls and gold, right? Because we recognize there was a cultural issue going on at the time. So he connects 9 and 10 to 11 and 12 and says, see, this is the same thing. These women were independent, strong-headed, ruly, and were essentially, he said, humiliating their husbands in public worship, right? Yeah. That's exactly right, and that's a very good point that you're making. Is what Campolo is saying is all of a sudden, uh, this new freedom suddenly created this overwhelming sense of privilege and demonstrativeness in these women that they began uh, humiliating their husbands in public worship. Now, socially speaking, I I find that a little hard to accept, considering the culture that this was in. Uh, now he's having to say that because he's having to explain what did Paul mean by this in a worship setting. Well. I think if he would have gone one more verse, I think he would have seen what Paul is doing. Paul now goes to what's called a creation model to explain this. Verse 13. He says, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So Paul is saying that the basis of a woman's function during worship of not teaching that's the main issue here of not teaching, is based on what? Well, it's based on the function of creation. Because he says, for Adam was formed first, and then Eve was formed. And so the argument Paul makes, and if you go to 1 Corinthians 11, you'll see it again. Go to your left. 1 Corinthians 11. Now, feel free if you guys want to interact with these passages. These are really important passages to interact with. First uh, Corinthians 11, Paul is going to expound on this idea a little bit more. Beginning in verse 3, he says this, talking about in worship again. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of woman is man. And that's the word literally for male. And the head of Christ is is God. 
So every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And the point that he makes is you have this you have this hierarchical thing. It looks like this. You have God, then you have Adam, and then you have Eve. Okay? And so Paul is arguing from an argument from a creation model that there is an order to authority. Now within this, Paul is going to argue something. That Christ, being God, did what? When he came down, what did he do? He came down in the form or the likeness of what? Of man. Not just a man, Philippians says, but what? A servant. And not just a servant, but a servant who eventually what? Died. Right? And not just died, but died the death on a cross. And so you see that what Paul argues, if you look at Paul's entire argument here, is that though you have a hierarchical order here that's in existence, true leadership and headship is one of servanthood. See? Where one lays aside the divine... Remember it says, "...and Jesus laid aside His divine rights, did not seek equality with God as something to be grasped." It was the laying aside of it. That was the virtue. And so whenever Paul talks about men, love your wives as what? As Christ loved the church, he really meant that. And what does that mean? Love your wives in what way? Where you become a servant. You become a doulos, right? In a sense, one who is at, at the mercy of another's well-being. You see? That's the idea. So it's not a hierarchical oppression, which Tony seems to be implying, is what this leads to. If you take the fullness of the biblical mandate, it's actually an ordered creation, God, man, woman. But within that, you now have servanthood as the leadership model, right? And so, you have now man uh, considering, uh, has the same Philippians 2, 2, uh, consider others as more important than yourself. And then he gives the example of Christ. But, you still have First Tim, First Tim two, that talks about the creation model, and you got First Corinthians eleven three. Okay, those are passages that need to, need to be reconciled. Let me make a couple other points here. In the Old Testament, the priesthood was essentially reserved for who? For men. And what tribe was it? It was it was the Levites. Uh, the head of every household in Israel was always who? It was the males, right? Whenever God, during the exodus, uh, during the plagues of Egypt, whenever He killed the firstborn of every household, who was the firstborn? The firstborn what? The firstborn male. Not the firstborn female. It was the firstborn males. There was something in the mind of God where male, malehood represented an order, see, to society to family, to the church. Um, If we go further, you'll see that all the genealogies that you go through in the Old Testament all go through who? All the begats are all through the men because it was the men that connected the promises, right? Through there. So you see once again that there there really is an emphasis on, on, on the maleness in the Old Testament. Now, Tony would, of course, argue, yeah, but that's Old Testament. Christ came and broke that division. See? But what's implied in that? When he says that, what is he saying about the Old Testament? 
Right. And that, and that the order that God established in the Old Testament was what on his line of thinking? It was wrong. It was sexist. Right? It was, in a sense, an oppression. And so what he's saying is, if God mandated and ordered it that way in the Old Testament, and his argument is that kind of an order in the New Testament is a demonic, sexist activity, then what he's saying is the fact that God ordered it in the Old Testament, it would seem that it would logically say that there is an oppression that's involved there in the Old Testament as well. Yeah, you know what? There's, that's a great question. I've actually kind of pursued that. Ron, have you ever asked your rabbi that question? She asked the question about why is it that in, in Judaism that you're Jewish through the mother? Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, there's about, I mean, I remember looking at that, and there's a number of explanations for that. But if you simply go back to Old Testament law, you'll see that it was always passed down through the, through the male, through the, through the father who was the head of the household. That's how you pass down property rights in the Old Testament. It was always through. Now, women certainly were given property rights. Uh, you remember the famous story of Hagla and Zillah, right? Um, Hag- <laughs> yeah, don't name your girls Hagla and Zillah, by the way. But anyway, Hagla and Zillah, they were two daughters whose father died and they had no son. And so, um, during the time of Moses... The 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 the, head, the the I'm sorry the male heads went to these women and they said, "You can't have the land of your father because you're not a man, so we have to take your land and give it up." And so these two women go to Moses, and they ask Moses to go before the Lord and seek the Lord and ask him if they can keep the land because it was their father's land. Moses goes before God and God says, "It is Hagla and Zillah's land. Give it to them." So there was. In, in, Old Testament, in Judaism, there, were, there was property rights for women. They had, in fact, many rights that were given to them that were equal to men. But the difference was that there was a distinction oftentimes in function. Okay? A couple more points. When you get to the New Testament, okay, Jesus calls disciples. All of the disciples are, are men. Okay? Now, did Jesus have a group of women followers? You bet he did. And he loved the, his, the women followers. They were the ones that really, when you look at the New Testament, they were the ones that really were the most faithful. Right? They were the ones that were all the way, to, they were at the cross at the time of Jesus' death. Um, women were the first ones that saw the empty tomb. Women were the first ones that Jesus showed himself to afterwards. Women are the ones, in fact, that got the greatest show, uh, signs of mercy in, your, in the Gospels. Remember, Jesus talks to women. They get more, we get greater pictures of mercy from Jesus before women. Uh, yet, Jesus, who was a social revolutionary, who broke all kinds of ties with Judaism, if, if he wanted to show uh, that, this, that this functional distinction was no longer in place, it would have been very simple, wouldn't it? All he would have had to do was what? Yeah. He would have just simply had to call a couple women disciples who were already accessible. I mean, they were following him. And yet Jesus never did that because the 12 disciples represented what? The 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus, though there was discontinuity with Jesus in breaking, breaking Jewish traditions, 
he held he held continuity with respect to the male thread of of leadership to the disciples. Um, and finally, you have uh, go to go to First Timothy chapter three. Okay, First Timothy chapter three. I'm going to show you one more important passage here. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, this is the book. 1 Timothy is the book where you have the rules and requirements for church order. Okay? So, in chapter 3, you see the qualification for bishop or elder or overseer, your Bible might say. In verse 2, he says, or verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Are you all there with me? He says, here's the trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, a bishop, or an elder, which is the equivalent of pastor, he, uh, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, which literally reads, a one-woman man. Not that he simply, as some have interpreted, he, he could only necessarily have been married once or whatever. It's not an argument against polygamy like some have argued. It's, li- it's an argument for character. He can't be what? Yeah, he can't be promiscuous. He can't be, you know, chasing skirts. He's got to be a person of great character, see? And it says, The overseer must be above approach the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, etc. Now, you go down and you see now the qualifications for deacons. Okay, now what's a deacon? An elder rules, okay, teaches and rules, and you see that the qualification is for men. What's the role of a deacon? A servant. Now look at the qualification for deacon. Verse 8. Deacons likewise are to be men, worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in too much wine. So a little bit's okay tonight, guys. Can I say that, Ron? I just did. And not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, now some of you says their wives are to be women worthy of respect, but many translations will even will actually say women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy. The idea being that you have an embracing of both men and women, both as servants within the body of Christ. See, so the deacons actually has a dual role of both men and women, whereas in the elder or pastor role, you see that it's exclusively resigned, at least the way the requirements are given, is to the husband of one wife. Okay? So what I'm doing tonight is I'm giving you the traditional case for the order, order of, of uh, what's called headship. Okay? And it, it goes back to the creation model God, man, woman, okay? And a whole other discussion is on the servant role of that, the leadership of that. Um, and then you also have, for instance, the actual practice of Jesus um, calling the disciples, and you have the mandates for rulership in the church, for eldership and rule, okay? Any comments or questions on any of that so far? Yeah. 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 Yeah, you know, and he was saying that there's, there seems to be an order and authority that is presented, and Tony was doing it all that he could to remove a 
sense of authority or control or leadership that exists. Is that kind of the idea you're talking about? Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, uh, what he says is, uh, and, I, and, I, and I didn't, uh, I didn't think he did a great job of this, uh, where he talks about when you have a headship model. Remember what he said the potential for that is. He gives a couple examples. What does he say? Yeah, abuse. Remember, of when you have that, and then all of a sudden you have pastors telling women to remain in abusive relationships because that's what God wants you to do. That's the order of creation. And he gives a couple of these examples. Well, what would you say to that? I mean, he's giving those as examples against this headship model. And what would you say to that? What's that? It's absurd because why? What would you say? That's right. It's violating God's moral law. And you never ever see biblically God commanding anybody to endure something that violates God's moral law, right? So, for instance, if you see this in Paul, whenever he says, if the state tells you to do something that violates God's command or God's law, what's your responsibility? To abide by the state or to abide by God's law? God's law. Remember James and, James and John go out preaching the gospel and they come to them, the religious rulers come, and they say, uh, stop preaching the gospel, right? And what do they say? We can't do that, right? We can't do that. We've been called by God. So you're never, ever commanded to endure something that violates God's moral law, ever. So I think his examples of the potential abuse of a headship model don't fly because there's protection that God gives for that. Um, Also, he talks about this idea that, uh, in fact, what's his biggest beef with it? What was Tony's biggest beef with this headship model? What's his biggest problem? I mean, he talks about the potential abuse and this kind of stuff, but what is the issue for him? It's the frustration of a woman's what? Giftedness and potential calling. That's what it is, isn't it? It's that if God has given a woman an ability to teach, and there are, you know, we got a teacher of the year sitting here in our, in our midst a few years ago, Lori. I'm bragging about you. She's not listening to me. Um, teacher of the year right there, right? We've got um, women um, are very able and capable teachers. This has nothing to do with inability at all. Nothing to do with inability. Uh, in fact, you could probably even make the case because women have a more empathic nature that women could even teach aspects of God in a much more powerful and persuasive way because of their empathic nature. True? I think that's true. A lot of times you get guys who who teach the sovereignty of God, the righteousness of God, the order of God and creation of these things very strongly, but you don't necessarily, uh, you know, you may not necessarily hear them teach about the true mercy and love and tenderness and gentleness of God. You can hear that from from the beauty of a woman's design. So, this has nothing to do with ability whatsoever, right? So, why do you suppose um, God has established an order of creation like this? What do you think? What's that? Yeah. Right. And again, um, in a truly biblical model of headship, okay, what you're going to have is anytime you have a 
a, a difference of opinion, okay, which I hear happens at times um, in marriage. What you're going to have is the mutual exchange of ideas and positions. The Bible is not a put your burqa on and keep your you know, mouth shut. That's not Christianity. Uh, you are supposed to uh, have the freedom to exchange ideas and thoughts with one another. And then you fully evaluate them. And then, depending on the nature of the situation, there's going to be times that the man says, for the sake of unity and harmony and love and peace in these things in my home, honey, let's do that. Right? And there's going to be other times whenever the wife feels the true passion and conviction of her husband that it's going to be that step of faith of, okay, I'm going to trust you. And there's going to be that sense of, okay, let's do it that way. And that ultimately, I mean, that's kind of an idealistic way of presenting it, okay? But you, but you need to do that. Um, no, but that's the idea. Is there, that there is a give and a take, but ultimately, when the push comes to sub, there's supposed to be a unity in the way that the couple goes because there is a headship within the model. And, uh, and this is my personal conviction, if it is where it is horns locking, right, and it's going to cause massive division within the two, um, I've always believed a man can only go as far as his, his wife allows him to go. It's true. And so the man has to, at that point, he's either going to buck up and create greater division, or he's going to say, for the sake of unity, peace, and harmony, um, I'm going to say, I'm going to wait. See, uh, but, but God has built it in there as a laying aside of our rights. Consider one another is more important than yourself. But you don't chunk a headship model of, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which, by the way, are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit ontologically equal? Yeah, it's called the Trinity, right? They are co-equal in every respect. Are they functionally equal? Careful. Because the moment you say they're functionally equal, you've just now introduced something that was dubbed a heresy in the 5th century. And that's called modalism. That if you say that they're ontologically equal and they're functionally equal then you've essentially obliterated all distinctions between the, th- between the three. And now all they are is simply one being in three manifestations. And that was dubbed heresy. They are Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal in all respects with different functions. And it's the same way that the church runs. It's the same way that the home runs. And there's unity, ideally, and harmony, um, so long as the head remains the head, which is Christ. Okay? Um, any other comments? Yeah. The headship model? I'm saying Paul interprets that as the marriage model. Yeah, I'm saying that Paul is using this in first. Well, again, we're talking about marriage. We're not talking about single parenting. I mean, I would say that I don't, I don't have, you know, I'm by myself as well, right? So that, but I'm not married. So there's, there's, there's none of that functional working within that now essentially we're you know it's not a it's not a marriage so this doesn't apply to no 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 you don't need you don't need a man to get to god that's the farthest thing for me what i said tonight at all i don't think i said that at all i mean if i said that at all i'm not coming back ever again <laughs> by order of run okay if you heard me say that, strike it, all right? Eve does not need Adam to get to God by any means, okay? These three are equal in their nature and their essence. 
They are each priests forever, which means they have equal access to God alone. What I'm saying is that the function of each of them are different. Okay? And as far as what those functions are, that's another talk for another time. Um, we're not here to discuss those. We're talking about simply the principle of or- the order of creation. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God, male, female. And that's the way it operates within the home and within the church. Now, Tony disagrees. I think his work in the Scriptures is poor um, in the way that he handled First Timothy chapter 2. He didn't handle some very, very problematic passages. So this chapter, from my opinion, um, was one of his weaker ones. Now, there's a couple others coming up that I think uh, I, I'm not too far from Tony on a couple of the things that he's saying. This happened to be a chapter I felt like he could have done a much, much cleaner job. And there was much too biography of his own in this particular chapter. So um, any final thoughts or comments on that particular issue? Yeah. You know, that's a, I've thought about that. Listen, we don't know. Yeah. He did, absolutely, yeah. And that's why, if you read New Testament theology, sin entered the world through the sin of who? Adam. Not through the sin of Eve. In fact, when Eve ate of the fruit, what didn't happen? Their eyes weren't opened yet. See, Adam was the one that represented the two of them. And so it was Adam's eating of the fruit that immediately when he ate, suddenly their eyes were opened. Eve ate and her eyes were still closed. She didn't go, oh my gosh, what's that? Right? So they were still closed. Now, my, my answer to your... What's that? Right. Now, I thought about that. And here's, uh, here's my take on that. Okay? We'll conclude. Sorry, if that crossed the line, I don't apologize at all. That's right. There's no kids in here. That's right. That's right. Um, here's what I think, okay? Now, we don't know. I'm just, I really want to give you just my opinion, but this is my thought because I think it's a great question. Adam clearly knew the mandate of God. Don't eat of that tree. And he threw it in that tree. Eve eats of it. He sees that she ate of it. She hands it to him. I think in that moment, I personally think Adam knew that he was faced with a choice. This beautiful woman that is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and buck naked in the garden is now, yeah, is now about to be banished from the garden because of her disobedience. So I can either choose to live apart from woman for the rest of my life in his mind, right? Or I can choose to enter into a world with her and to be supportive of one another through whatever it is that God now has us do. And I think he chose the woman over the Lord because I think the connection was so deep between the two of them in that state that he could not imagine living without her. At least that's the romantic view that I take.